Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Uh, just a couple announcements here, a couple things to um, let you guys know about real fast before we get into the questions. Uh, first, I am doing another live Q&A episode. I am going to be doing it in a couple weeks on Father's Day, June 18th at uh, 10 a.m. Uh, my time, which is Mountain Standard Time, Denver, Colorado time. Uh, I will be going live. I uh, promise that this time the sound will be better. I'll have a better setup and uh, should have better video quality as well because I'll be using this camera right here. Uh, now that I've got the stuff I need to make that into a uh, webcam. So anyway, should be a, uh, a good episode technically. And I have some, um, I'll be looking forward to getting your live questions uh, for that episode. And I think that's going to be a very special episode. Um, so you guys need to be there for that. So anyway, again, June 18th uh, at 10 a.m. That is Father's Day. Uh, 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. All right. And also, um, if you haven't seen my podcast this week uh, about uh, why the left isn't right, <laughs> isn't always right, um, it's a politically minded podcast this week, uh, critical, applying some critical thinking to the left and the left wing. Um, because, um, you know, I've, I've gotten uh, some negative comments and feedback for some of my left wing views, and I thought that I could uh, put out there some things that might indicate that, um, you know, that I'm not a, a left-wing nut libtard. <laughs> so anyway, uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing at all, then I think you'll find that podcast very interesting. It is definitely a good historical look at the whole progressive movement and the left-wing in general, going all the way back to the 1700s, actually, um, and really uh, tracing where modern progressive thinking and liberal thinking comes from, and the bad as well as uh, maybe some of the good. So anyway, I'd encourage you guys to check it out. Now let's go ahead and go on, get on with your questions for this week. Willie Winwood, are you familiar with the connection between L. Ron Hubbard and Aleister Crowley? To what degree did they know each other, communicate, and possibly influence one another? My first anti-Scientology book was called Hubbard, Madman or Messiah by Bent Corridan. I no longer have the book, but I recall that Hubbard wanted to emulate Crowley right down to iconic photograph portrait poses. Hubbard has called Crowley my good friend. Was he just making that up, or was he being truthful or figurative? Do you consider Hubbard a black magician in any sense of the phrase? Also, is the story true that Hubbard was working for an intelligence agency to infiltrate Crowley's operation? L. Ron Hubbard and Aleister Crowley. Uh, there's a lot made out uh, about this relationship online. Uh, in some places, far too much, too, far too many dots are being connected that shouldn't be. And I think really the answer to this whole thing is, is probably, you know, an Occam's razor sort of thing. In other words, the simplest answer really is probably the truthful one, which is that Hubbard, uh, after the war, was sort of adrift and, and, uh, and not really sure what he was going to do, but he didn't want to go back home to Seattle area, up to Washington, uh, I think Port Orchard, where his wife and kid, uh, kids were because um, that, well, he wasn't a family man. He had been cheating on his wife for years. Uh, the war was not you know, everything it was cracked up to be as far as he was concerned. His own fortune and glory was, uh, you know, 
kind of tarnished and trashed because he was not really a very good naval officer or captain and uh and you know, that's the whole another story but uh basically he was adrift he was in pasadena california and got hooked up with a guy named jack parsons uh, jack parsons was a rocket scientist and a from jpl and he was also a follower of Aleister Crowley and uh, a believer in Crowley's uh, magic uh, with a K, which some people have called black magic or the occult or, you know, there's various words for this. Uh, I don't know. You know, the definitions of these terms are so loosey-goosey that I don't really have strong opinions about it one way or the other. I'm not going to argue about, about these various terms. but. Uh, or what it was they were trying to do, but it wasn't satanic in the sense as I understand it in that they weren't worshiping Lucifer or Satan. Um, they were engaged in sort of, uh, if I understand, and I haven't read this you know, deeply, but if I understand Crowley's work, it's about um, expression of self-will and, and desire and, uh, and achieving, you know, making yourself you know, a more powerful, able sort of uh, person, not necessarily in the same sense that Scientology promotes it with clear and OT and this kind of thing, but, um, you know, there's this sort of do what thou wilt sort of uh, philosophy was Crowley's thing, and he thought that for whatever reason, that, that, that prayers and incantations and, and appeals to, you know, guardian spirits and, and this sort of thing would, would somehow result in, you know, this sort of personal power and ability. And so Parsons was a firm believer in this. He was, he was actually, I think as I understand it, sort of a, a representative of, of Crowley's here in the United States. He had some clout and some cred, and he operated this out of his uh, mansion home in Pasadena. So Hubbard gets hooked up with, uh, with Jack Parsons through a science fiction friend, I think, is how they, they met. Uh, Hubbard ends up staying there at, at uh, Parsons' place and gets involved with Parsons, you know, magic rituals. And they're gonna create a moon child and do these sex magic uh, rituals to pull this off, right? And, uh, and then Parsons' girlfriend, uh, Sarah Northrup, um, was also there and Hubbard ended up absconding with her, you know, got her right out from under, um, Parsons and uh, and took Jack Parsons for a ride uh, to the tune of you know ten fifteen twenty thousand dollars. So and then he then he took off and he was no longer part of Parsons project anymore. Now that all happened in Pasadena. Uh, Alistair Crowley lived in England and he never came over here as far as I know and certainly didn't come over here and meet L. Ron Hubbard in person. And Hubbard didn't go meet Crowley over in England. I, I have no record or indication that that ever happened. Uh, after Hubbard got involved with, you know, doing his Scientology thing, he went over to England to set up some things. But I don't have any indication that he ever went out of his way at that point to meet Crowley. So, no, they weren't friends. Uh, in fact, I don't think they ever had any direct correspondence or communication, even on a phone call or a letter. And, um, and from what I have read, Crowley was telling Parsons uh, that, you know, to get rid of L. Ron Hubbard, that, that, he's, that he thought that, you know, this idea of them making a moon child and doing this sex magic was ridiculous and that, that Hubbard was probably conning Jack Parsons, which is exactly what he was doing. Now, there's indication from 
Hubbard's affirmations, the, the written self-hypnosis commands and, and pages and pages of, of Hubbard's thoughts that he put on paper and which were kept and exposed by um, Jerry Armstrong in the 1980s uh, from Hubbard's personal library and personal notes, there's indications in those notes that Hubbard was a believer in the concept of a guardian spirit. He mentions this in the writing and that he has one, he has his own guardian spirit. And that lends me, you know, over to the idea that Hubbard was a believer in what he was doing with Parsons. Now, the Church of Scientology has not denied and cannot deny because of the documentation on this, that Hubbard was there with Jack Parsons at his, his place in, in uh, Pasadena and that they did engage in these sex magic rituals. So the church is saying, yeah, no, that did happen. But their story, their, their spin on it is that Hubbard was, was doing that because he was infiltrating uh, Jack Parsons' place. And the church probably got this line from Hubbard. Hubbard himself is probably the one who invented this idea that, oh yeah, I did that, but I did it because I was saving Sarah from Jack. And, you know, he saved a girl and he, you know, broke up a, a you know, sex ring or something, which is just, you know, nonsense. Hubbard did no such thing. Uh, no one ever got in any legal trouble uh, that I know of uh, from anything that happened at Parsons' place. And if anyone uh, should have gotten in legal trouble as a result of all those things that went down, it should have been Hubbard for taking Parsons for a ride and defrauding him. So, you know, the fact that Hubbard tries to spin it to make it look like Parsons was the bad guy and that, that the people who were living there were all bad people is just his attempt to, uh, dead agent is a Scientology term, you know, uh, those people and make it all seem like it was something that it wasn't. This is something that Scientology is, you know, very, very good at. Uh, and they've, you know, for example, they've, they've uh, managed to somehow try to explain Hubbard's whole military uh, career, which was a total dismal failure, as, uh, yeah, that's not really what happened. Really, he was very successful as a military spy, but they, you know, uh, changed all of his military records to make it look like he was just a humdrum, you know, no, no good... Uh, military officer because uh, that was his cover, you know. It's like, Jesus, really, guys? Really? That's your story? <laughs> but that's their story. So, um, and by the way, I didn't know about any of this, uh, or very, very, very little of this until after I got out of Scientology. This is not stuff that Scientologists talk about, you know. Even the whole concept of Hubbard being a, a, a spy and and not having a good war record and all that, uh, and this whole thing with him with at, at Parsons' place, all of that stuff is just sort of glossed over, hushed up, or outright lies are told about his war record and his and and then going it, it, in the Scientology world, it seems to go straight from the war to Dianetics, and they sort of skip over the whole Parsons thing. Uh, but there were actually years in there where you know there was stuff going on, so. And just in case you guys were wondering about that. So I don't, um, I don't give any credence at all to the story that Hubbard was there as part of some police or military operation. I think that's just total bullshit. So that's what, uh, that's, that's pretty much the, the extent of the story. Hubbard did definitely take ideas and concepts and whole, and whole phrases from the ODO, the Ordo Templi Orientis, 
and uh, Crowley's works. Uh, if you read Crowley's book, like I got a copy of this, the Book of the Law, and it's put together, I mean, Hubbard, there's axioms and things, and it's immediately recognizable to a Scientologist. They go, oh, wow, yeah, this is just like Scientology, because Hubbard wrote axioms and logics and pre-logics and all this sort of, you know, scientific-sounding stuff. But, you know, once I opened up this book from Crowley, I was like, oh, wow, that's where Hubbard got this from, you know? Uh, so, you know, Hubbard was ripping off these things, and I think I mentioned even in my last video this week um, that Hubbard took the phrase Golden Dawn uh, out of the uh, OTO and out of Crowley's stuff. So, so there's, there's a lot of Hubbard, you know, being inspired by Crowley's work and putting together Scientology stuff. So, you know, it's not hard to connect those dots, and uh, that's about everything I can say about that. Benjamin C. Johnson. When did you learn that Charlie Manson was a big believer in Scientology? I doubt that the church trumpets this connection. Chick Corea might be terminally unhip, but at least he doesn't have any facial tattoos. It looks like Charlie took the pieces he liked, added some Dale Carnegie, and went out to build a cult. His biggest takeaway from Scientology, find people who are damaged, not broken. Do you think that, in the wrong hands, Dianetics and Scientology can be used as manuals for building a personalized destructive cult? The last question you asked is actually the one that's most interesting to me here. I don't know how involved Charles Manson was with Scientology, and I don't know that it really matters a whole lot. He was a crazy person and a murderer and, um, and obviously a you know, destructive cult leader. And whether he picked up principles from L. Ron Hubbard or from other places, you know, I don't know, but what he was doing was definitely not Scientology, so, you know, sort of the question doesn't really interest me that much. It's sort of, well, you know, Charles Manson is insane, and he did insane things, and if he was inspired by or looked into Scientology at all for uh, any tips on how to do those insane things, yeah, he could find some, some tips in that, but you'd have to be pretty savvy reader of, of Hubbard's work to draw from it destructive cult methodology to go start your own cult. So let's go ahead and talk about that a little bit. Um, I think I've said before, or worded this in, in particular ways, that um, you know, destructive cult leaders, there's only so many ways and methods and, and means to fool people and, and get people involved in a mind control type of situation. And, and by mind control, I don't mean some, you know, weird thing. I mean, you lie to people, uh, you tell them half-truths or exaggerations, you, you build on their hopes, and you build on what it is that they're hoping, you know, they're hoping to get from what it is that you're offering. And then you lead them down a path where they are seeing and hearing and experiencing things that, so as to give them the idea that you are accomplishing what you say you're accomplishing, even though you're not, right? Um, so can you make people feel good? Can you make people uh, feel like they're experiencing some new different change in their life that they wouldn't have been able to experience without you? That's what destructive cult leaders do. And uh, whether they're, you know, Hare Krishnas and they do it by chanting and dancing around and creating euphoria that way, 
or whether they do it through a Scientology method of auditing where they sit a person down and say, we're going to ask you these questions and at the end of us asking you these questions, you will feel better. So here are the questions, da 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 and the person is sitting there knowing that as the end result of being asked these questions, they're supposed to feel better. So they will answer the questions and go through the process so as to make themselves feel better, right? Like there's a lot of self-contribution to the process because the person is indoctrinated into what to do and what to expect. And that's how a lot of, um, that's a main, a number, a big reason why uh, Scientology auditing works. It's very, very different from counseling. It's almost a, a misnomer to call it counseling or, or psychotherapy because it's so not that. It's a very one-size-fits-all sort of thing as far as this is the method, this is what we're going to do, and everybody feels better as a result of what we're doing, so you'll feel better too. And you know, then the confirmation bias kicks in and the cognitive dissonance kicks in where you're expecting you know, A and B and C to happen and, and you'll keep doing it until A and B and C happen. And, and that's kind of how that, how that plays out. Um, so you could, if you were, I suppose, uh, maybe contradicting myself a little bit here, but I suppose if you were in a frame of mind where you knew that Hubbard was playing people and you wanted to play people, then you could look at what he does and how he does it and you could take some of those methods and ideas for yourself and go use them. Uh, you, you know, you could do that if you were savvy enough to, to see through all that and, and do that. Um, and the methods, there's so many things going on in Scientology that are designed to change your mindset, you know, to, to be a destructive cult member. There's so many of these control mechanisms, in other words, that it wouldn't, you know, that you could take two, three, four of them and you could go build a whole cult just on those, you know, uh, in the same way that you know, people build cults on the concept of meditation or on, uh, you know, putting your body a particular way and, you know, primal scream or some screaming, you know, like they'll take one thing and they'll build a whole thing around it, right? Well, Hubbard took 20 things and built this whole thing around it, right? There's just so many techniques and things going on with it. So uh, Charles Manson or anyone else could come along and, and take those techniques and do something like that with it. And I don't think it would even be that hard. Leo Taxel. Who is this Don Purcell guy? What was the source of his wealth? Why did Hubbard know him? And why was this guy willing to bail him out? I don't know a whole lot about Don Purcell, just what I've read about him, which is that he was a uh, self-made millionaire in the Wichita, Kansas area. I believe he made his money through oil. He had a company called Omega Oil Company or something like that. And he was very interested. He had a real thing for self-improvement, self-help groups, and trying to make a better person, trying to make the world a better place by making people better. Um, and so he somehow heard about Dianetics, I have no idea how, and loved it. He loved the idea of it. He thought that this was definitely the next big thing. And I think somehow he reached out to Hubbard and uh, connected up with him and offered to go into business with him and set up the Dianetics Foundation in Wichita, Kansas, after the LA and New Jersey organizations had tanked 
and Hubbard had driven them into, into bankruptcy through bad management and basically through ripping off their funds and, and, uh, and also excessive hiring and this. I mean, Hubbard was just did not know what he was doing as an administrator. So Purcell heard whatever sob story Hubbard had to tell, but was so enthralled by the concept of Dianetics that he went, okay, I'll back you. And uh, Purcell was the president, and Hubbard was the vice president of this Dianetics Foundation, as I understand it, in Wichita. And he had a building, and, he, and Purcell was basically a big investor. And Hubbard took him for a ride, right? Because that's what Hubbard does. And he took advantage of him. And then uh, when it wasn't really going, Hubbard blamed Purcell, uh, started complaining to Dianeticists and people in the Wichita area and, and, and to anybody who would listen that Purcell was a cheat and a liar and, a, you know, and, had been, and was himself, he was the con man. He was the guy who was trying to rip off Dianetics from L. Ron Hubbard. And really that was not the case at all. Hubbard, Purcell totally bailed out Hubbard totally gave him a second shot at doing something with his Dianetics. But, I mean, let's face it, Dianetics doesn't work. So, it, you know, Purcell was just bought into the pseudoscience of it, and he happened to be a guy who had a lot of money. Hubbard went, great, I'll take your money. And then when he was done and Purcell saw that this wasn't what, you know, it was all cracked up to be, Hubbard took off. But, Hubbard had a problem because uh, he had signed over the copyrights and the rights to Dianetics and all the materials of it to Purcell, and Purcell was the president of this group. So when Hubbard took off, he tried to invalidate and, and uh, denigrate Purcell and everything Purcell was about, and he took off to um, Phoenix, Arizona, and he started up the, with, the, with the Church Scientology. That falling out happened in 1953. Purcell then went on to something called synergistics or something, some other self-help thing, and he was going to offer that and work with that group, and he was going to do it for free. They were going to offer the synergistics thing for free, and, and it wasn't going to be a for-profit sort of operation like Dianetics had been. Purcell held on to the copyrights, and Hubbard was giving him crap about it, um, and then uh, sometime in mid-1954, Purcell said, reached out to Hubbard and said, look, I'll just give it all back to you and you just take it off my hands. And uh, I think because Hubbard probably left Purcell saddled with all the debt and uh, Purcell had to deal with all that. Um, and so then he just said, okay, screw it. And he gave the Dianetics copyrights back to Hubbard, which is how in 19, late 1954, 1955, Hubbard was able to, to use the word Dianetics again and wrote Dianetics 55 which was supposed to be, you know, an updated book on, on the status of Dianetics now, but really Hubbard was full tilt boogie on Scientology at that point, so Dianetics was not really a big, big thing for him at that moment. He circled back around to it later and, you know, kind of tried to make, incorporate Dianetics into Scientology and, and that, and using the e-meter and using other techniques and stuff. So that's sort of the story with Purcell and, uh, I don't really know what happened to him after that, um, but that's his place in the Scientology history. Andy Lesser. Hey Chris, this may be a relatively simple question, but I was wondering if you had many experiences when you were in Scientology witnessing other Scientologists crying. Was it considered expressing weakness to cry? Worse for men than for women? What were the reasons for their sadness and what were you supposed to do as a Scientologist? 
and assist, recommend they do more auditing, write a knowledge report. Thanks for any light you can shed on this. You are one of my favorite light shedders. Oh, well, thank you. And um, yeah, I saw Scientologists crying all the time, uh, especially public Scientologists, right? Um, but you know, people would get upset, you know, and get into griefy, upset situations all the time, whether through frustration, you know, like in the Sea Org or as a staff member, you know, you might get people get, you know, tears of frustration, uh, you know, or tears of, you know, of, uh, of anger uh, over, you know, some problem or situation they were trying to cope with or deal with related to their job. And it, of course, for staff and Sea Org members, there is no case on post. So you're not supposed to dramatize your case, meaning you're not supposed to have emotion. You're not supposed to show how you really feel. Um, and, uh, and so they might, you know, end up going into a corner and crying or going into a private room or something. And, and you know, you just kind of deal with it. Hubbard says that, let me give you a little perspective on, on sympathy in Scientology. Hubbard says that, that you know, you, you don't sympathize, you be effective. And, and by that he means you use Scientology techniques on someone to get them to feel better by addressing the actual reason why they feel bad in the first place. And most of that is going to come down to the person is re-stimulated. Something happened to them in their past, whether it was earlier this lifetime or in, you know, far, far back in the past. Um, that was very, very traumatizing and very stressful, right? And, and that something in the present environment has re-stimulated, or another word might be triggered, that memory or the pain and emotion of that memory, and so they're upset now. And the idea in Scientology is that if you didn't have all of that stress and trauma built up and, you know, emotionally captured in your mind and, and there to trigger, if you get rid of all of that, then you won't have any cause or reason to be upset in present time. I mean, if something happens right now that is upsetting, like your mother dies or something, you might feel some degree of loss and grief over that, but it won't be like these days of ah, crying and, oh my God, my life is horrible and everything's awful because I just lost my mom. You know, you're not supposed to really feel that way as a Scientologist if you've gotten rid of all that past stress and trauma, right? So, but of course, that's only at the highest level. So until you've reached those highest levels, you can be expected to get re-stimulated from time to time. In other words, triggered, you know, from these things that have happened to you in the past. And so Hubbard says, you know, don't sympathize, be effective. So do something with Scientology to address this person's problem. Like, for example, if they're all re-stimulated and crying and upset, that means that the, that the mental image pictures are, you know, crowding in on them and they're looking at those mental image pictures more than they're looking at what's going on around them in the real world. So one solution might be to pick the person up and sort of take them for a walk. And I don't mean to like drag them, I just mean, you know, help them up and gently, let's go outside, let's take a walk, you know, and let's look at some things and try to get the person to stop staring at these mental image pictures and instead look at the environment and see that, you know, that was then and this is now sort of thing, right? The problem with this, of course, is that you're not letting the person experience their emotions and you're not letting them go through the experience of having a loss 
because people need to experience that as I understand, <laughs> I generally understand emotion now. But what I'm explaining to you is how Scientologists deal with this, right? Is it's like the emotion they're experiencing right now isn't really an emotion that they really should be experiencing right now. That's why in Scientology they call that misemotion, right? It's bad, negative emotions, or it's emotions that are not really fitting for the, the, the moment or for the time. And so excessive amounts of grief and excessive amounts of loss don't really, you know, don't really fit into that. They're, they're misemotion because, hey, the person's an immortal spiritual being, you know, like your mother dies. Well, hey, you know, they're an immortal spiritual being. It's not like they're really gone. They're going off to get another body. They're fine. There's nothing wrong. It's all good. So don't, you know, why are you so upset, right? And of course, you're upset because you're not around anymore and they're not going to be around anymore and you're not going to have them in your life anymore. So, of course, you're going to be upset. But the Scientologist, I just explained the Scientologist mindset about that, right? So you're not supposed to feel that way. Uh, or it's very, supposed to be very minimum, right? Um, so that would be one way of, of effectively dealing with that grief is get the person to snap out of it by taking them for a walk. That would be an assist type action. Um, if somebody were on their post, on their job, and they were acting misemotionally, uh, as far as Scientologists were concerned, angry, upset, you know, griefy, crying, uh, you could end up writing a knowledge report on them. But, you know, I don't know, I, I maybe once or twice in my, in all my years, I saw somebody do that because Scientologists generally aren't monsters. I mean, when somebody's upset, they want to do something to help the person. So... You'll take the person for a walk or give them what's called a locational. Maybe they don't get up and walk around, but you sit them down and you sort of point to things in the room or you ask them what's wrong and you get and you just listen quietly to what they're saying and sort of, you know, pat them on the hand or something or sympathize with them. You can sympathize in Scientology, but it's the last thing you do. If you can't, Hubbard said, if you can't audit them, then, you know, do something effective like an assist or something. And if you can't do that, then, you know, you could sympathize with them, right? If nothing else, if there's, that, that's, that's kind of considered the lowest, you know, most ineffective thing you could do, but you could do it. Okay. So that's kind of how that's thought about in that world of Scientology. And I hope that kind of gets across um, how that's dealt with. Norma May. Regarding the topic of whether Scientologists expect L. Ron Hubbard to return, if they're not expecting him, why are there homes for him and offices for him all over the world? And, 420 Escapade, if Hubbard didn't think he was going to reappear as a leader of religion anymore, why, oh why, do the Scions spend so many dollars on the construction and upkeep of his offices, waiting there for him in pristine condition when he is ready to make his grand return? WTF. All right, um, my take on this is not that the Scientologists are waiting for L. Ron Hubbard to return. And I say that because in all the years that I was in, that wasn't my understanding of what all those offices and the model homes and whatnot that Scientologists were, Scientology was restoring, all the places where Hubbard had lived and, and kept a home. Those were memorials to the man. And the offices that are kept in all of the churches of Scientology are for show. They're a show of dedication and loyalty. Uh, Hubbard was big on this. And you got to, the, the thing to get about Scientology is it's a show. 
It's, it's showmanship, right? There's so much in Scientology that is just fake. And, it's, and Hubbard wanted it that way. He's the one who said, you keep an office for me in, my, in every organization, right? Because when he was traveling around, he needed a place to work if he went to an organization. And he did travel around in the 1950s and 60s uh, to the various churches of Scientology around the world. So he did do that. But once he stopped doing that, he wanted that show of loyalty and support for him. He was source. L. Ron Hubbard was the single source of Dianetics and Scientology, according to him. Now, if there's some desperation in that, it's because Hubbard was desperate for that admiration and that he, he had that kind of megalomania sort of thing going on. He needed to get that support. He needed that security. And this is why he was so down on anybody who took Scientology and, and techniques and, and methods and went out and, and did it on their own. And he called them squirrels and he had them fair gamed. He wanted them pursued to the ends of the earth. He wanted them sued out of existence because it was all about him, right? Um, this is a big, big deal in Scientology is that it's all about him as far as he was concerned. So, um, so the, the, the idea with all of that is that, um, is that he wanted that, he needed that recognition. So that has been built into the DNA of Scientology, so to speak. And so this idea of restoring, buying and restoring the properties where he lived or stayed, like in Phoenix, Arizona, um, in Washington, D.C., in, you know, South Africa, all these places, um, you know, the idea is that Scientologists would come visit them, and wouldn't that be ooh and ah? It's also a place for the church to invest its funds in terms of uh, real estate, right? Just like the ideal orgs and stuff like that. Or like the, the church is obligated to spend some of its money on things that would be memorializing or somehow forwarding, you know, the religion as far as the IRS is concerned. So that could be another factor as to why to buy these properties. Um, but it's not because there's a literal idea within Scientology that Hubbard's coming back reincarnated and is gonna go and use those offices. That's not, that's not really what Scientologists think. I never met one Scientologist in all my years who thought that, who literally thought that that was what was the, the deal with those offices. And, uh, and also a reminder that L. Ron Hubbard was the source of it all, right? Because no one in Scientology has a clue what a plagiarist and a lying scumbag L. Ron Hubbard was when it came to taking other people's work and, and, and making it his and saying that it was his creation and his discovery when nothing could be further from the truth. So much of Scientology is not L. Ron Hubbard's. So, you know, he was fighting against that by creating this myth and Scientologists don't know any better, so they forward this myth and that's why you see those offices and those properties and why the church thinks those are important. It is time for Flash Answers. Digger John. Chris, love the show. You mentioned in this video that you went back to LA recently and happened to be right outside Big Blue. 
Is it tough to see such vivid reminders of your life in Scientology? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course it is. It was uh, triggering, restimulative, whatever word you want to use for it. Yeah, my stomach was doing flippy flops and uh, it was not a good time out there. Uh, walking around Big Blue, but I, I did it because I wanted to confront it and I wanted to look at it and I wanted to see what kind of response I was going to get to being there and seeing some of the people that I used to work with. I mean, I saw my the person I did the RPF with uh, right there. I walked right past her. She ignored me, of course, because I'm persona non grata now, and I'm sure she knows that. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's uh, it was not uh, it was not a frolicking, you know, skip to the loo <laughs> kind of fun situation. But um, but that's to be expected after, you know, everything I went through with that stuff. So whatever. Margot Robinson. I looked at the most recent posts on Marty Rathman's blog and it looks like the OSA took it over. This looks very sad. Why is his blog now putting up posts that attack opponents of Scientology? Did the terms of ending his lawsuit mean he had to turn his internet properties over to the Church of Scientology? Do you have any idea what caused this to happen? Nope, I have no clue. I mean, literally, I got nothing. And I have said uh, that, in fact, I made a whole video about the fact that in the world of critical thinking and rationality and reason, I don't know are the three most important words there are. Because if you can acknowledge that, then from there, you can then gain knowledge. But if you just assume that you know what's going on or invent ideas, then you're not going to really get anywhere. So when it comes to Marty Rathman and what's going on with him, I don't know. And I hope maybe someday to find out why he turned and did what he did on his blog and why he uh, now has gone quiet. I mean, you know, there's lots of dots you can connect on that in terms of assumptions you could make, but really it just comes down to, I don't know. Happy Atheist. Not sure if this is a question or just a comment, but the thing that strikes me when listening to you speak about Scientology is just how boring and tedious it all sounds. Besides the absurdity of it all and the obvious money grubbing, it's hard for me to believe people can tolerate being asked over and over about minute details during auditing and having to read slash listen to boring texts and speeches. Years ago, I purchased a copy of Dynetics at a used bookstore just to see what it was all about and I wasn't able to get past the boring, repetitive BS on the first few pages. Do many people leave after a few sessions simply out of boredom? Oh yeah, you bet they do. Uh, far more people leave Scientology or just sort of skim in and out of it than are in it or have ever had much, you know, to, to, to keeping with it because they see pretty quickly that there's not a whole lot to it. It really isn't the, you know, bomb diggity. And, uh, and they move on, right? Um, it's, the, it's the few, you know, the, 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 the kind of the idiots, you know, <laughs> who stick with it forever because they buy into it or they're raised with it or something like that where they're in a, they get into a frame of mind. Basically, they get into a frame of mind where um, they have a vested interest in or, a, you know, a good reason to want it to work. And so they make sense out of things that don't make sense, really. And they uh, read things into it that aren't really there in order to make it better than it really is because they want the carrot. They want the, 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 the prize that Scientology offers. And they're willing to jump through whatever hoops they need to in order to get that prize. And that's, 
that's really what it kind of comes down to in a, in a nutshell. So, you know, is it boring and tedious? You bet it is. And there are a lot of people who go through some very, very rough times, uh, you know, dragging themselves back, you know, onto the, into the course room or dragging themselves into the auditing sessions because they think that it's going to get better just, just around the corner. You know, it's just going to get better if they just stick with it. And, uh, and some of them eventually just go, yeah, nope, and hit the eject button. And others keep sticking with it. And they persist. So, all right, that is our show for this week. I will remind you again, June 18th, Father's Day, live broadcast on the Critical Q&A show here. So uh, definitely be sure to, to tune in, 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. Uh, on Father's Day. I will be here live, and I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks for coming around. Leave any questions, comments, or feedback, good, bad, or sideways, in the comments section of this video. I see all of it, and whether I respond to it right away or not, I do see your comments, and of course your questions, and they go in my queue. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.